Hey, it kind of occurred to me that maybe some of you out there don't know me as well as others, but um, as you've heard a few times already this morning, my name is Tina. Um, I've been around in this particular church family since um, I shifted up to Hamilton um, nearly 27 years ago now, so I've been around for a little while. And um, the cute guy that was on the drums this morning is my husband, Simon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he is cute. <laughs> anyway, um, so this morning we are carrying on with our Thrive series, and this morning we are going to consider um, identity. And if you were here last week, I hope you were, because we had some really important teaching and training around mental health and suicide prevention uh, and awareness. And I feel like hopefully this is a really good follow-on topic from that, because there's a lot of hope in having a true and positive view of your identity. So I'm really excited to share with you this morning a bit about what I've been learning. And um, if you've heard me teach before, normally I have like a number of takeaway points that I, that I want you to get. But today I just have one and I'm gonna give it away right at the beginning. <laughs> so this is my point that I really hope that you'll go away knowing today. Your true identity is um, found in who God made you to be. Let me say that again. Your true identity is found in who God made you to be. So we're going to look at this from um, chapter 38 of Genesis. So you could go there now if you want. Um, and this chapter that we're going to look at, it's always been in the Bible, of course, um, but I don't think I've ever heard it taught on in church. Maybe you have. Um, but it's kind of partway into the story of Joseph. And whenever the story of Joseph is kind of taught through, um, we tend to skip over it. It's, it does seem kind of out of place in Joseph's story. It's a side plot. And I think that's maybe why we skip over it. And it, it does also have um, some adult themes in it. But don't worry, parents, I'm going to treat those a bit carefully this morning. So because it's always been skipped over, it's been a story that's fascinated me. And in one of the Bible study groups that I was part of, um, we were often encouraged to think about, well, why is a particular part in the Bible in there? Why did God want it included? If it's there, it must have a purpose, right? Um, so it's kind of bugged me. Um, if it's important enough for the story to be in here, then what does it mean? And, you know, if it's important, why do we skip over it? Then one day I looked up a particular word in the story, and what I love about Bible study, looking up this one word and finding out a little bit more about its meaning kind of unlocked the whole thing for me. And so I reckon I have an idea why this story is here and something that we can learn from it. And as I've mentioned, we're going to glean something about our identity, um, what we should hold on to, what maybe we should let go. So speaking of identity... Um, these days we have certain documents that kind of confirm our identity and they can be really important in different situations. Um, a couple of months ago one of my kids was making an application and so I had to take their birth certificate plus a copy to a JP and get the copy verified so they knew that it was a true copy that I was sending in. And the birth certificate, that's actually my one up there, um, gives um, the name, date of birth and some information about your family, right? Most of us, uh, if we're old enough, we have a driver's license as well, and um, we use it for ID when we need to prove who we are, maybe we need to prove our age, um, and obviously it proves that we're allowed to be driving on the road. 
Some of you might remember that back in 1999, our um, driver's licenses changed from a paper copy that was about this big and didn't have to be renewed for 50 years, how great was that, um, to these little plastic ones that now have our photo on them. And um, when they first came out, oh, so these ones with a the photo, they have to be renewed every 10 years. And because everyone that had a license then got them all at the same time, they, rather than have them all expire in 10 years at the same time, they made this rule that they expire when you have a birthday that ends in five. So for example, um, when this came out, my next renewal of my license was going to be when I was 35, but that was quite a few years down the track. Um, so I was quite stoked. This is not something that you think about every day, but as the admin person in the house, I was quite stoked when I remembered when Simon turned 35 to say, don't forget to go in and get your license renewed because it's expiring on your birthday. There was only one problem with that. Um, Simon and I have our birthdays only nine days apart, but I'm a year older than him. So I suddenly realised I had not remembered a year before when I'd turned 35 and I had been driving around with an expired licence for a year. So I was like, oh my goodness, went in, got my photo taken, um, applied for my new licence and for that week, you know, after I'd been in to apply for it till it came in the mail, I just felt so guilty and illegal driving around with an expired licence. <laughs> but the bonus is that um, now my licence expires on my sixth birthdays and Simon and I are synced up, so... So that's good. <laughs> so enough about me. Let's get to the story that we're going to look at. So turn, swipe, scroll, whatever you're going to do, to Genesis 38. Um, that's the chapter that we're going to be anchored in this morning. And we're not going to read it right through, so I'm going to summarise some parts of it, and then we'll look at some in a bit more detail. Just a wee bit of background first. So although this is in the Joseph narrative in the Bible, the story is actually about Judah down there. Um, and Judah is an older half-brother of Joseph, and he's Jacob's fourth oldest son that you can see there. Judah's mother is Leah. Um, and it's in, slotted in, the story of Judah is slotted in uh, right after we learn about Joseph and his beautiful coat and how his brothers betray him and um, sell him into slavery. <coughs> So it starts off, these are the first six verses of the chapter. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her, made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizav that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So just some things to note from these first few, few verses. Judah has left his family and settled out on his own. Now, it's interesting because it says he left his brothers. And we know from chapter 37 that... Um, the brothers, other than Joseph, um, are living in Hebron and they're working together as shepherds. What it doesn't say is that, it doesn't say that Judah left his father, but of course we know that he has left his father as well. And this is quite a big deal. Um, if we look at that family tree again, um, Judah's father Jacob is the third generation since God gave Abraham, uh, yeah, gave Abraham those amazing promises 
um, that he would have a big family, that they'd become wealthy, and that somehow this family, through this family, there was going to come a blessing for the whole world. And Jacob had those promises confirmed to him personally that they would come through his line rather than his brother Esau. And he's also been told that there's specific land where they, would, where they needed to settle. And Judah knows all this, and yet Judah left his brothers and went. So we're not told specifically at all why Judah left, but in the chapter before, we know that it was Judah's idea to have his brother sold off as a slave. And Judah, along with his other brothers, participated in you know, that deception of their father with um, Joseph's coat being soaked in blood, and they saw um, the devastation and heartbreak that Jacob suffered, thinking that Joseph was dead. So it's a fair guess that this may have been weighing heavily on Judah's conscience. So he's left his family, he's settled in a land with people that don't know and don't follow God, and he's made a life there. And it seems like he's put aside for now the future that God had for him through his identity as an inheritor of those promises that God had made. And there's evidence um, in this chapter that he's making a life not following God's way, but fitting into the community around him. But despite all that, we can see that um, from, so from those verses that um, he's married, he's had some sons, um, his family's growing up, and he's found a wife for his older son. So maybe things are going all right for him. Hmm. Well, except that we know um, Judah's grandfather, Isaac, and his father, Jacob, uh, were both told specifically not to marry, not to find Canaanite wives, sorry. And we know that the Canaanites don't follow God and that they do worship idols. So the fact that Judah has found a Canaanite wife um, for his son is a bit of a red flag. Our next indication that Judah's choices and decisions are going to have an impact come in verse 7. It says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. No details, just those really stark facts there. This is where the story turns a bit unusual. So the thing that Judah should have done now is to have um, his next son, Onan, marry Tamar, who's been widowed. And then when Tamar had a child to Onan, this child would be considered um, Ur's child and would get his inheritance um, and position. But Onan did not like that idea, so he took the part of the bargain that suited him, but didn't let Tamar become pregnant. God didn't like this either, so God also put Onan to death. And you can read about that part yourself in verses 8 to 10 if you've got it open. So Judah now has two sons gone and just the youngest one left. And no doubt he's really grieving the loss of his two oldest sons and quite worried about his youngest one. So technically now what Judah should do is have his youngest son, Shayla, marry Tamar so that she can have a child and the... Um, inheritance line would go through that child. But somehow Tamar seems to get the blame for what's been going on, even though we know that those eldest sons um, were punished for their own actions. And at this point, Judah comes up with a plan and a lie. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's 
household. So his plan is that he banishes Tamar back to her family, to her own parents, which would have been really shameful and um, didn't provide a future for her. The lie is that Judah says, I'll come and get you when Shayla's old enough. But we see that um, Judah actually has no intention of doing that. So Tamar is left at this point widowed, deprived of a future or children, and she's now been wronged three times over. So from when this happens, many years pass, and Judah's wife also dies. There's nothing, um, no strange circumstances there, but Judah is left grieving again, and now he's in a bit of a pickle. He's left with one son, he has uh, no wife to have any more children, he has no heir, and Judah is a bit stuck, because if he wants Shayla to get married and have an heir, then he first has to give him to Tamar, uh, give Tamar to him, and he doesn't want to do that. So Judah wallows and sinks into his grief, and life kind of carries on for a bit. But then the story gets weird again. But I have to say, despite all of this, um, Tamar seems to be quite confident in her identity. She knows that this family of Judah's owe her the opportunity um, of an inheritance through a child. And in fact, she never wavers in this story in her conviction of who she is and what she's entitled to. So having had many years to think about this situation, Tamar herself comes up with a strange plan and a lie. The lie is that she disguises herself and puts on a veil so she can't be recognised. And the plan is that she locates herself on the side of the road um, at a place where she knows Judah will pass by. And it's most probably um, near or part of an idolatrous shrine um, that included certain terrible practices. And she somehow knows that this is now part of Judah's character, that he will visit this kind of place on his way home from a trip with a friend to um, check up on the, how the shearing is going. And sure enough, he does. So without going into detail here, um, Judah seeks out a particular roadside service and unknowingly interacts with the disguised Tamar. However, payment is expected for this service and Judah has left his wallet at home. Let's see how the conversation goes. So Judah says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. And Tamar replies, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? And Judah says, what pledge should I give you? And she answers, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her. So Judah says um, to the disguised Tamar, he doesn't know it's her, that he will send payment later, like he doesn't have it with him, he doesn't have a goat in his wallet right now. Um, but Tamar wants some sort of guarantee for this. And um, she wants a guarantee or a pledge. And when he asks her, you know, what shall I give you? She asks to hold on to his staff, his cord and his seal, and he hands them over. Judah gives her, his seal, cord, and staff. And this is actually huge. These three objects are really important to the story, and they're important to Judah, and they're valuable. They're central to the story, how the story turns out later, because it's almost as if he's given away at this point who God made him to be. So let me explain, because I was interested. What are these things? I mean, I'm kind of 
um, intrigued about a, a word that stands out, um, I'll often take a look in the original language to see if that will help me out. So that's what I did in this case. So I looked up seal, and that's a word called chotham, and it um, is a signet ring or seal. Um, and you can see there um, that, that the, it's either in the form of a ring or in the bottom right-hand corner, the orange um, cylinder there that's hollow and can have a, have a cord through it. And it's, um, it makes a mark in like wax or clay, kind of like a signature, and it was often hung with a cord around the neck. So the cord, that's pretty straightforward, pathil, um, a cord or thread for measuring or fastening. In this case, the, the seal, either the ring or the um, cylinder, had the cord through it to hang around the neck. Obviously, the ring could be worn on the finger as well, but in this case, it had a cord. And then there's the word staff or mata, which is the staff, and it means staff, rod, branch, or tribe. And it's a fairly common word used throughout the Old Testament in one of two ways. So a staff, as you might imagine, um, is a walking stick or rod. But when this particular word is used, it's not just an ordinary staff or rod. Um, it signifies that the person is a leader. It represents their authority. So examples of other places where this word is used for staff is like when Moses, the staff that he used um, when God brought the plagues on Egypt later, um, and when Abraham um, held out the staff over the Red Sea and later um, struck a rock for water. And it's the same word for staff that Aaron, Aaron's staff that budded and was later put in the Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes the word is translated, the same word, matar, is translated as scepter, um, for royalty or the importance of um, the owner of the staff. Um, like here, you might have seen King Charles, he was given two scepters or staff at the coronation. don't know whether you've had uh, troubles with screwdrivers like he has there. <laughs> um, so an interesting thing is that it's a different word that's used um, for the shepherd's staff, like in Psalm 23, when it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That staff just has the meaning of an ordinary like walking stick or support. Interesting, eh? So back to our words. Um, the second use of this word, mata, um, and this is what really got me with this story, is it's the same word translated over and over again in the Old Testament as branch or tribe. As in, these, are, these people are of the tribe of Judah, or the tribe of Benjamin, or the tribe of Zebulun. They literally, it said, um, the people that come under Judah's staff, or Benjamin's staff, or Zebulun's staff. And when I read um, the definition of that word, and the way it's used, it hit me that what Judah had so casually given away in that moment, he did intend to get it all back, yes, but he'd given away carelessly was the things that represented his identity, his position in his family, and the future that God had for him through his promises as a leader of a tribe. He was part of the promises that God had made that told that God was going to do something really special and amazing through this family for the whole world. The staff represented God's plans for him and who he should have his faith in. Um, and so all three objects, seal, cord, and staff, represented Judah's God-given identity 
and authority. And he gave them away. It's just like he handed over his passport, his um, driver's license, and his birth certificate to a stranger when he could have just maybe left a coat or something else as a guarantee. It's really interesting because this part of the story echoes um, a similar scenario just a generation before when Judah's uncle Esau gave up his God-given identity, his birthright, because of an emptiness in his stomach. You might remember it was for a bowl of stew. Here, Judah gives up his God-given identity, his seal, cord, and staff for what seems to be like a soul-deep emptiness that he's trying to fill. He gives away all that represents what God has given him for momentary relief from his troubles. Now, before we shake our heads at Judah um, and judge him too much, aren't we just like him at times? You know, maybe, hopefully, we don't go giving away our passport, birth certificate, and driver's license to strangers. Hopefully, we also don't get hacked, eh, Shelley? <laughs> um, but I do think that there are tons of things out there that are pulling at our God-given identity and pressuring us to give that away um, for something less valuable. You know, when we feel emotionally, relationally, or spiritually empty or under pressure, there are multiple things out there that vie for our identity. Um, whether it's um, whether we go to food or to substances or alcohol or online shopping or just zoning out in front of screens too much or maybe it's snappy words that take over our identity or maybe we withdraw from community or join and become part of an unhealthy community. You know, like Judah left his family, it can sometimes feel safer um, and easier to move away from relationships that have got hard instead of making the effort to restore them. You know, sometimes um, we create an identity through what we produce, whether it's kids or work or assignments and study or something else. We create an identity by the way we look. You know, maybe like Judah and Onan, um, we compromise doing the right thing if we think our assets or our finances or our family are going to suffer by doing the right thing. You know, maybe like Judah, you have suffered loss and grief and sought comfort in things or people to try and ease the pain. You know, maybe at times you just layer up your identity in the way you look, um, the way you dress, the way you wear your hair, your skin, or your clothes. Um, just a small example from me um, was for during most of the 2010s, um, when I really struggled with the question that people most often ask when they meet you. And they say, so what do you do? <laughs> and for eight years, I wasn't working outside of the home in a paid job. Um, so I couldn't, and I couldn't also really claim to be a stay-at-home mum, because all my kids were at school. They were actually mostly at high school during those years. So it's not like I was staying at home to look after them during the day. So I would kind of dread this question when people would say, so what do you do? And I'd either come up with this really long explanation of all the things that I was doing to keep busy, which there were a lot, <laughs> um, even though I wasn't working, or else I'd kind of just brush it off. And it always felt really awkward because I felt like I didn't have some sort of um, accepted label for the what do you do question. And I know that this is really minor compared to lots of identity struggles that people go through, but it was, it was real for me at the time. 
And I'm pretty sure that most of us have struggled with one aspect of our identity at some time or another. Um, you know, school and high school is a really hard time for that. And then, you know, choosing what you do after school, you leave school and you, you know, decide what you're going to do and you think, phew, that's over, only to find that there are so many more questions to be answered about who you are and what it means um, for the direction of your life. So if you're in that age group of pretty much like 10 to 25, I really feel for you in this area of identity. But you know, I'm nearly, I'm just about to clock over into double that, and I don't know if you've noticed, but um, it doesn't ever really end. <laughs> it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, um, everybody seems to want to know what's next. Um, some of those things that I mentioned before that we do to create an identity aren't necessarily an issue on their own. Um, but they become a problem when they take place of or devalue your true identity in God. Those things, um, although they can try and take over your identity, they aren't your true identity. So what is well, your true identity in God, to every person here, you are loved. You are uniquely made in God's image. This is who you are. If you know Jesus today, you are chosen. You are a child of God. You have been made new. You have a purpose. You have a sure future. And God's promises are for you. These are your God-given seal, cord, and staff, and who God made you to be. And you know what? If you, as Terry's already alluded to, if you don't know Jesus yet and have a relationship with him, um, then the good news, literally, is that you can start that journey today. And I or any of the leaders here would love to talk to you about that afterwards, if, if that's you. So this is our true identity in God today. But back to our story. What's Judah going to do next? He's given away his cord, his seal, and his staff. Well, he heads home, and he does try and do the right thing. He sends the goat with a friend to try and pay um, the, the mystery woman from the side of the road to get back his cord, seal, and staff, but she can't be found. And this leaves Judah in a really embarrassing position. He's lost his possessions, can't get his stuff back, and he just tries to ignore it for now, which is never a great solution to a problem, is it? It turns out that Tamar becomes pregnant, and three months later, everyone in the community knows about it. And Judah hears that Tamar's pre pregnant under shameful circumstances. What does he do? He goes totally ballistic. He condemns her, he judges her, he calls for her to be brought out and put to death in a really cruel way because of what she has done. I just think, what? Really, Judah? This is Judah who sent Tamar away. He's not allowed her to marry his youngest son. He's not provided for her. He's lied to her and basically abandoned and rejected her. And yet when she seems to have messed up, and actually she's messed up in a way that he has consciously chosen to also mess up, he condemns her. But Tamar has foreseen that this circumstance was gonna happen and she's planned for it. So look, look at what she does as she's being dragged out. 
verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. I'd love to know what tone of voice she used with that last sentence. <laughs> but I think she was probably fairly terrified. So, um, Here Judah is confronted with the truth of the matter. That seal and cord and staff are his. There is no denying it. It's as if his driver's license photo was on them. Trust me. They're his identity. They represent who he was meant to be. He has willingly given them away. And he's not been living up to what they represented. And because Tamar has them, he knows that he is the father of her child. In condemning her, he has just condemned himself in front of Tamar, in front of the community, and undeniably to himself. Now, I just imagine what a shock that this would have been for Judah, right? I imagine his stomach dropping when he realizes. I imagine him looking around and seeing everyone else's eyes widening as they realize, um, you know, he's just made this very angry, judgmental condemnation in front of them moments before, and it's come back on him. And I imagine that there was a silence while everyone, including Judah, realized the judgments that he'd just made on Tamar were equally, if not more, true of himself. Wow. So what does he do? Judah recognized them, and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla. Well, to Judah's credit, um, when there was no denying the truth, he recognized his own wrong, and he recognized that Tamar had only claimed what was owed to her, what Judah should have made sure she received, but had instead knowingly withheld. Tamar is in the right, and Judah was in the wrong. Now, I just have to say that she had gone a strange way about things, and we might question her methods. If you read the chapter later, you'll know what I mean. But ultimately, Tamar received what was her right. You know, in him saying, she is more righteous than I, Judah is saying, I was not righteous in this. I did wrong. I messed up. I admit that to everyone here witnessing it. And we're not told specifically, but at this point, I actually imagine that Judah is holding back onto his seal and cord and staff. He has them in his hands. He's reclaimed them, and he has them back in his possession. And the awesome thing is that from this low point in his life, Judah reclaims his God-given identity. Because this chapter with Tamar explains how Judah stuffed up, how he realized he stuffed up, and why we see him doing the right thing next in Joseph's story. Because when we next see Judah, um, in Genesis 43, he's protecting and taking full responsibility for the safety of his half-brother Benjamin. And he puts his own life on the line um, towards his father and also to the governor of Egypt, who is secretly Joseph. Judah is changed by this event. So, why did God include this bizarre story and all that he thought we needed to know from the Bible? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. So firstly, as I've mentioned, it's actually really important to the story of Joseph. 
And it's also really important to the story of the tribes of Israel that come from Judah and his family. So it's, it's always bugged me, you know, why did God not choose Joseph um, to be the line of promise through whom the Messiah, um, Jesus, would come? After all, Joseph doesn't seem to stuff up at all. He's the eldest son of Jacob's favorite wife. And, you know, he was the one that was given dreams and visions. So why was it actually Judah? Well, Judah was far from perfect, as we've seen, just like us. Um, Judah wasn't the eldest son of the family, but he was the son of Leah. And um, if you go back and read her story, which is also really interesting, you'll find that despite her own troubles, um, she did find peace and trust in God. So I, th- I think that the line was always going to come through one of Leah's sons. And then if you look into the lives of Leah's sons, Leah and Jacob's sons, the first three each do something terrible um, and don't seem sorry for it, and they rule themselves out. But with Judah, he stuffed up. He went away from trusting God or living God's way. But when confronted with this, he recognized what he'd done. He made it right. He does the right thing by Tamar, by the way. He went back to his family, learned from his experience, and next time he trusted God and did the right thing. And I imagine God thinking, this is the kind of person that I can use. The line of promise will come through him. So last but not least, this story is here for us today too, because God didn't just overlook Judah's mistakes. He redeemed them. God used them for his good purposes. When Judah chose to step back into his God-given identity and go back to the place that God had called his family to, he had new insight, greater compassion, and the confidence to do the right thing. As I've already mentioned, he was prepared to put himself on the line to protect and be the guarantee for his brother Benjamin um, for the sake of his father. And the explanation for why Judah acts so differently and protectively um, in the second half of the Joseph story towards Benjamin compared to how he acted towards Joseph in the beginning is because I believe what happened to him with Tamar. Think about how Judah can now relate to his father. They both have the shared grief of having lost um, loved wives and loved sons. Uh, Judah can understand his father's fear and protection of Benjamin and wanting to hold him back from going to Egypt because Judah himself has had the fear of losing his son Shelah and holding him back from something he thought was danger. And Judah now knows several times over that there are painful consequences to not doing the right thing, even if it's the hard thing to do. You know, this is also a message for us because God can redeem my mistakes and messes and the hard things from my life too, and in yours, and he can use them. You know, the wrong choices, the hurts, the things that I regret, the things I grieve for, the mistakes. You and I are different people for having experienced those things. So we know our true identity is found in who God made us to be. And when we grab back on to our God-given identity and allow God to use our experiences, we see the world and people around us a bit more through His eyes. 
God can give you and I the confidence in who he created us to be. And he can use us to do awesome things for him through the gifts that he's given us with new understanding and compassion and strength to do the right thing. What's your true identity again? It's these things. You are loved. This is God speaking to you. You are loved. You are uniquely made in God's image. If you know Jesus, you're chosen. You are a child of God. You have been made new. You have a purpose, a good purpose. You have a sure future. And God's promises, all those 9,000 that uh, Joyce told us about a few weeks ago, they are for you. Will you hold on to the seal, cord, and staff of your God-given identity and authority today? Will you choose to live from that identity and not create one that isn't true? When life pulls and pushes you around and wants to make you into something different, will you hold firm and refuse to give up what God has given you? Don't trade them for something less. Will you let God redeem the experiences that in your life and use them for his good? Your true identity is found in who God made you to be. And that is where you find security, acceptance, peace, and the life and plans that God has for you. And there's a ton of hope in that. Let me pray. Oh God, um, it's just so humbling, Lord, to come before you um, and to know that in all your power and sovereignty and amazingness, Lord, yet you choose to have created in us an identity that's um, in your image, that you love us, that you've made us unique, and that you long for us to live from the people that you created us to be. And so, Lord, I just pray for each one of us um, hearing this message now, Lord God, that we may leave this room standing taller, knowing who we are in you, Lord, and have the courage to live from the identity that you have given us, our true identity, and the power and authority um, that we're able to do this through what Jesus has done on the cross in Jesus' name.